Welcome to the Granary Church podcast. We're happy you could join us. For more information on the Granary Church, head to granary.org.au or follow our socials at the Granary Church. So today, just to get you up to speed with where we're up to at the moment, we're going through the book of Luke. We're going through the four Gospels this year and uh, we are reading the book of Luke two chapters a week and really focusing on what they're telling us about the good news of the kingdom of God. If you're in a connect group, you're doing that. But we're encouraging everyone to do that. There's bookmarks that you can take to keep us all on the same track. And uh, But uh, uh, for our preaching, we're looking from the book of Luke, we're looking at the miracles. And as we look at the miracles, we're looking at the character and nature of God and which helps us understand his kingdom. And every miracle is done differently. That's a really key thing, you know, because you know what we're like, we're formula people. And uh, if Jesus did every miracle exactly the same, we would write the formula for miracles and we would all do it. But they're never the same and they always reveal something more. Otherwise, we just want this power and it's the heart that actually comes through that is incredibly important. And today we get to do this one that, um, well, we start off, I got to Theo and I got to do the one about the uh, guy with the demon in the synagogue and having the demon cast out. So that was a fun one. And uh, today we get a more well-known one about this guy who's lowered down through the roof on a, on a bed because he's paralysed. What a story. And uh, there's a, a kid's book about this called Four the Fabulous Four or something, focusing on these friends who get to do this, who get to do this for someone. But there is so much in this, so let's have a look. Luke 5. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they couldn't find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. It would have taken a bit of precision digging, wouldn't it, to get right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friends, your sins are forgiven. Friend, sorry. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up and take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God, They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. I would say that last verse is like a little summary. It sounds so formal. Everyone was amazed and they said, we have seen remarkable things today. I think that's kind of encapsulating it for the purpose of using the scroll, making sure we get this in as fewer words as possible. Honestly, that would go beyond everyone was amazed. And I'm sure that they didn't just go home and say, Hello, I've seen remarkable things today. That's encapsulating the power of what happened that day is probably beyond words what they saw. When you hear that story, you probably picture yourself somewhere. Just like if you read a novel or if you watch a movie, you immediately identify with someone. Generally, if you read a novel or watch a movie, you are the main character and uh, you win. And so who are you in this story? 
I, I, I think actually we're everyone at some point in this story. And it says in verse 22, Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? So when you read this story, you see these different, you see the, the friends who carried the man, you see the man, you see the onlookers, you see the Pharisees, you see Jesus. And Jesus looks at everyone. We, we see them all from externally. But Jesus says, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Jesus sees the thoughts of your hearts and he sees the thoughts of the hearts of the, of the person sitting next to you and the pe- people you live with and the people you work with. He sees the thoughts of your hearts and the thoughts of your hearts are more than the thoughts of your mind. They're actually the thoughts that come from the deepest part of your being, your, your longings, your desires, your motivation, your intentions, your reason for doing things. The thoughts of your hearts are sometimes greater than you really understand, more powerful than you understand more noble than you understand and more wicked than you understand all at once. The thoughts of your hearts. And that's what he is looking at in this situation. He's not just looking at what they did, whether they are pulling, putting a man down on a mat through a roof or whatever. He is looking at the thoughts of their hearts. And the thoughts of your hearts, I would like to suggest, are almost, diffi- almost impossible to control because they come from the depth of you. They come from what you know, what you've learnt, what you've experienced in life. They're the thoughts of your hearts. And if we can allow the Holy Spirit to get down to the deepest thoughts of our hearts and fill those thoughts with his Holy Spirit, that will actually change everything in our lives because we are very good at appearance management, at word management, even trying to encapsulate you know, like positive thinking management. But there is a thought of your heart that only the Holy Spirit can redeem. And it says in Ephesians 1, the Apostle Paul prays this for the church in Ephesus, and I I just believe it's a prayer that we should all be praying for ourselves and each other. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know, I just want to pause on that, because as I said before, the thoughts of your heart are what you know and experience, what life has done to you and how it's formed you, and therefore you know things. You know to be afraid of things. You know to be wary of things. You know to trust things. There's this deep thoughts in your heart. And he is saying here, I pray that you will know these things, that these will cover everything else, that you'll know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in this holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Three things, that above everything that you know in life that's happened to you, that's been done to you, that you've done, that you've achieved. You may know you are great at something, you're clever at something. Above all of that, may you know the hope to which he has called you. May you know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And you may, may you know his incomparably great power for us who believe. So when Jesus looks at the thoughts of the hearts of everyone in the room, as he does today, his aim is that we would have thoughts that come from heaven that know his hope, that know his, in, the glorious inheritance for those who trust in him and his great power. And as Jesus looks at the room here in this story, this is what he sees in everyone. And he understands that in every person there's slightly different thoughts of the heart and he has an ability to reach everyone from the thoughts of their heart. The first thought that he sees is these self-righteous thoughts. The self-righteous ones are the ones who are judging what's going on in the room, and they are the Pharisees. They see what they've achieved. Now, do you know any um, 
pharisaical, self-righteous people. I know myself pretty well. And uh, I was having a conversation with someone who I love immensely, who has the uh, right to speak into my life and I, recently. And um, I was talking about, it was an encouragement. <laughs> okay, this is an encouragement. I, I was saying um, I went to a school reunion and I realised that I'd made some really good choices in my life. Therefore, I'd done better than some of the other girls that I went to school with. And this person said to me, can I just say kindly, that sounded really self-righteous. Now, I was raised this way. You make right choices and things go well for you. So therefore, I'm looking back and saying, I made right choices and actually things went well. But when they said that sounded really self-righteous, I was gutted actually. And I thought, I'm not self-righteous, which proves that I am. That's what I thought on the inside. And I just said, thanks for telling me that. Because, you know, you've got to react in private. And I went and I, th I thought about that for the next few weeks and I thought, that did sound really self-righteous. Because what they said was, you don't know what the rest of them went through. And I don't. So I did make some good choices, but truly not because of myself, but because of the grace of God and the people that he surrounded me with. And I saw that even in the way that we can be taught in churches to be godly can be self-righteous. And the eyes of my heart were opened. And I saw myself in a different light. And the fact that I was offended that I was called self-righteous was a problem as well. Because of course I am. We're all self-righteous. Because we all try really, really hard to be good and do the right thing, thinking that our righteousness will somehow win us favour with God. And as the scriptures say, our, our righteousness is like filthy rags. And I, I just felt God saying to me, if we could all wake up and see honestly how self-righteous we are every day, we would be stunned where we think um, we deserve things. And, you know, if you've ever prayed a prayer where you've said, um, God, I've done this and this and this, why can't I have this? Self-righteous. You think you've earned it. And the Pharisees were stuck in this thing. Sometimes we're really tough on these Pharisees. They were just trained to follow the law to the T and they believed that's what made them godly. And you and I can be just like that. We follow it to the T and that makes us godly. And it actually, it says, I read, it, it was their zeal for the law that caused the Pharisees to become focused on rituals and externally keeping the law. They abandoned true religion of the heart for more, mere outward modifica behavior modification and ritual. And it made them critical. It made them analytical. It made them cynical. It made them to think that they were better than other people. Is that in any of us at any time? And Jesus had said to them, not, not in this story, but he says to them at some point, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. And I believe that as followers of Jesus, sometimes we can stop people entering who are trying to because we have laws for them. If you don't think that's true... Just ask the Holy Spirit to show you because he's waiting to show us. As soon as you say, is this true of me? Um, be ready because he will show us. But Jesus actually cared for these guys. When he says this, he's not being mean. And when he's looking at you like this, he's not being mean either. He wants the doors of every church to be flung wide open so that people can come and encounter him. And so he says to them, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. 
But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he's trying to show them this, that there's this big barrier between people, God, people and God and it's our sin. And Jesus is actually being kind to them when he says this, you, you, you know, because it's like, you know, when you read a text message or an email, you can't hear the intonation. So sometimes you read it wrong and you get offended, then you find, oh, it wasn't meant offensively at all. So when we read this story, which is easy to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Is Jesus saying it in a reprimanding way? How do you hear him saying it in your head? And how you hear him saying it in your head will give you an indication not of the truth of the story but of how you see Jesus. And if you hear him saying it cynically and angrily, that may be how you see him. But I think he's saying it in love and care for a whole lot of people who are there. At least they went there. They're trying to work it out. They're analysing. They're trying to see if this is the Messiah or not. They want to protect people from false teachers. Their, their motives are not all evil. They're trying really hard to, to do the right thing. And so Jesus, knowing who they are, saying, I want you to know this. The Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I am the Messiah and I'm going to prove it to you. So that's why he says first, your sins are forgiven because everyone believed that if, if you were sick and paralysed like this guy is, it was because of sin in your life. Everyone in the room believed that. That's, that was the, the whole way that they all thought, whether they were Pharisees or not. Everyone believed this guy was paralysed because he sinned. And so Jesus clears that and he says, your sins are forgiven. Now get up and walk. And he's trying to say to these Pharisees, see, I am the Messiah and there is forgiveness of sins and you don't have to try as hard as you were trying. You only have to, to come to me. It says in um, 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He is not speaking to any of them with disdain. He loves every one of them. But he's speaking to them because he can see the thoughts of their hearts. And he's doing that to us today as well. And we need to say to him, Lord, don't, don't let me be blind like those guys were. Because they crucified him. They missed it. And it is possible to miss it. It's just a simple prayer of God, help me to see the thoughts of my hearts. Matthew Henry writes, How many are there in our assemblies where the gospel is preached who do not sit under the word but sit by? It is to them as a tale that is told them, not as a message that is sent to them. You can sit there and the word can be preached and the worship can be sung and you sit by it but not under it. And it sounds great and you can sit in a connect group and you can tell the stories and you can analyse it and then just walk away and not allow it to penetrate to the depths of your heart. And we can all be like that. The next group of people is the hopeless people. They see the problem very clearly and this is the man. He's paralysed. He can't move, he can't work, he can't care for his family. All he can do is lie in his bed every day. And he's abundantly aware of his sin because he believes that his sin has left him in this condition. So he's probably not a full of himself person. He's a broken person and he's paralysed. And you too may not be physically paralysed, but you may be paralysed in some situation in your life. And you may be analysing yourself and you may be saying, I wish I'd made this choice or I wish I'd done that or I wish I hadn't done that 
I wish, and ha wish I hadn't had this home. I wish I hadn't had this family. I wish I wasn't in this family situation now or this job situation. And it seems hopeless and you seem paralyzed. And you cry out to God and nothing happens. And you feel like you, don't, you just don't know what to do. You have, you have no idea what to do. You're not opposed to God. You even love God. You're abundantly aware of your sin. You're abundantly aware of the problems all around you. And you just can't move. There's nothing that you can do. Have you ever been in a situation like that? You cry out to God. You are aware of all your sins, your failures, your faults. You hate yourself because of your sins and failures and faults. You wish you hadn't done it. You play it over and over in your head. Why on earth did I do that? Why did I think that? Why didn't I do that? And you just lie there paralyzed and you are stuck with it. And you may look like you're just motionless, but in your head, you're going, has anyone just laid there motionless but their head's going really fast? Anyone relate to that? And that's probably what's happening with this man. He's lying there motionless, but his head is going really, really fast. And there is nothing that he can do, nothing that he can do for himself. And this is a significant part of the story because in your life today, you may be the paralysed person or there will be a paralysed person in your life. And I think it's key that we understand that we can always be one or the other. And you either need to be crying out to people or you need to be going to someone. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and then the power of the kingdom of God rushes into your life but sometimes you need help to do it. And that leads us to the next group of people. They are the hope-filled people. And the interesting thing about the hope-filled people, if you compare it with the paralysed man, all the paralysed man can do is to lie there and look inward. And we can all be really good at that. And you don't know how to get out of it because you can't move. But then you have these hope-filled people. <clears throat> and the thing about the hope-filled people is that they look up to Jesus and they look out. Firstly, they notice their friend. Firstly, they are his friend. This is a big thing because sometimes paralysed friends are not fun friends because they just lie there. They can't go for a walk with you. They can't go out with you. Particularly in these days when there was nothing much to help a paralysed person. That's, they're just there. And they might, they might be miserable as well. And I'm sure you've all had friends who are paralysed and miserable and they're stuck. And sometimes we're there for them and sometimes we're not. And we have to ask ourselves that question. Do I have people who are paralysed in my life? Do I have people who look they're stuck? And maybe they need me. And this is what Kent Hughes writes, that power to, sit to heal this man was unleashed by the love, the conviction and the faith of the paralytic's four friends. We must love those around us so much that we will tear through roofs for their sake. We must have the conviction that Jesus is the only way. You see, what they did that day was pretty outstanding. Firstly, they had a plan that we're going to carry him to Jesus. That was the first plan. So they're all together on that. Four people. It's interesting that they've got together and they've talked about it and they said, let's get him to Jesus. So then they start to walk there, but there's a crowd there. And some of us stop there because there's a blockage and think, well, look, we did our best and maybe we'll try another day. But they don't do that. They start thinking they problem solve. The four of them have a big problem solving meeting, obviously, to work out what to do. And then they count the cost. Is it worth going up, because not our house, to take the roof off someone's house and lower someone down? Is it worth it? And they do think it's worth doing that. Is it worth pushing in front of all the other needy people? That's an interesting thing. Look, we just hold back in politeness. 
but they don't do that. There's incredible love, and that is the heart for, for, of God for people. Because if you're the paralyzed person, how loved do you feel if they don't say, look, we tried our best, but there's a big crowd and we can't get in, sorry, maybe we'll try another day, let's go home. And how disappointed would you be? But these guys do not give up. They say, we're going we're gonna to get there. Whatever it takes, we are, we are going to get there. That is actually the love of God for you and me. When Jesus came and gave his life on the cross for you, he says, whatever it takes, I'm going to open the way for you to be redeemed. Whatever it takes. And when he says to us that you will be known by your love, this is the sort of love, the whatever it takes love, that we don't discard people. We don't say, well, you know, they messed up, so goodbye. We don't need them here anymore. They're not perfect anyway, so why would we want them? And um, these are the sort of people who say, we are going to fight with everything within us. Henry Nguyen writes this, when we say to people, I will pray for you, we make a very important commitment. The sad thing is, this remark often remains nothing but a well-meant expression of concern. So it's meant kindly, I'll pray for you. And then you just never think about it again. But when we learn to descend with our mind into our heart, then all those who have become part of our lives are led into the healing presence of God and touched by him in the centre of our being. We're speaking here about a mystery for which words are inadequate. It's the mystery that the heart, which is the centre of being, is transformed by God into his own heart, a heart large enough to embrace the entire universe. Through prayer, we can carry in our heart all human pain and sorrow, all conflicts and agonies, all torture and war, all hunger, loneliness and misery. Not because of some great psychological or emotional capacity, but because God's heart has become one with ours. I've been reading this great book called Crafted Prayer by a man called Graham Cook. And he talks about this, like aligning your heart with God's when you're praying and actually listening to what the Spirit of God is saying as to how to pray for this person and write the prayer out. And then he calls it push prayer, P-U-S-H, pray until something happens. And I've started developing this myself. I've got a journal where I'm actually writing out prayers for people, listening to the Holy Spirit. And rather than changing the prayer every day, listening to what God is saying and actually writing a push prayer out, where I actually keep praying this for someone every day until I see something happen. And I believe that's part of, it's just a part of, carrying people up the stairs, lifting up the tiles, getting them down through the roof, not giving up on them in prayer. And you can do that in the silence of your, your own room, your own home. But to allow our love for people to so consume us that our prayer times would really keep bringing them to the throne room till we see the breakthroughs come through in their life, till they can actually get up and walk by themselves again. And that's the heart that God's looking for in all of us. And then we have this heart of mercy. We have this heart that sees the whole picture. And this is the heart of Jesus. And what we have here is two sides of the gospel of the kingdom of God. You see, often when we, we Christians talk about um, knowing Jesus, we talk about his grace which makes us worthy. Or we talk about our unworthiness and sometimes Christians can even divide into two camps on this. We are nothing and or we are something. And they're both two sides of the same coin. This man comes abundantly aware of his sin and Jesus says your sins are forgiven and then he shows him grace and shows him mercy. 
And all we have in God is his grace and mercy. We must be abundantly aware of our unworthiness, of our sin and our failure. And then we become abundantly aware of his grace. And it's his grace that ushers us into the throne room of God where we can receive bold, audacious answers to prayer. Because what these guys do, they have bold, audacious prayers. They go all out because they're expecting something really good to happen. Their hearts are filled with faith. And Jesus looks at all of them and he sees the whole picture. He sees the hearts that are full of faith. And his heart unites with those and a miracle happens. He sees the longing for repentance and he forgives sin. He sees hope. He sees the hope in the deep in their hearts and he fills it. He sees blockages in people's hearts too and he gives them the way to get out of the blockage. So he has the ability to reach out to the, the thoughts of every heart. He sees their boldness and their boldness shows a true understanding of God's mercy, God's willingness and God's power. Your boldness is not based on your own self-righteousness. Your boldness is based on your understanding of God's mercy. When you understand God's mercy, then you are more likely to come boldly to the throne than on your own self-righteousness or just on the fact that you are saved. It's his mercy. And there's this beautiful prayer that I want to read. It comes from the um, Anglican Service of Communion. And it says this, We do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord trusting in our own righteousness. And sometimes we do come to the table of the Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. So just pause and ask yourself, when I come to prayer for myself or for others, do I come trusting in anything of my own righteousness or do I come trusting in your abundant and great mercies? We are not worthy so much as to gather up crumbs under your table but you are the same lord whose nature is always to have mercy understanding of yourself understanding of his nature grant us therefore gracious lord so to eat the flesh of your dear son jesus christ and to drink his blood that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our souls washed through his most precious blood and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us John Newton, who was a slave trader who came to know Jesus and repented of everything that he had done and wrote the the beautiful hymn, Amazing Grace, had received some amazing answers to prayer and he called it large asking. And when people asked him why did he ask so largely, so greatly, so um, audaciously for answers to prayer, He would tell the story of a man who asked Alexander the Great to give him a huge sum of money in exchange for his daughter's hand in marriage. And the ruler consented and told him to request of his treasurer whatever he wanted. So he went and asked for an enormous amount. The keeper to the funds was startled and said he couldn't give him that much without a direct order. Going to Alexander, the treasurer argued that even a small fraction of the money requested would more than serve the purpose. No, replied Alexander, let him have it all. I like that fellow. He does me honour. He treats me like a king and proves by what he asks that he believes me to be both rich and generous. John Newton concluded the story by saying in the same way, we should go to the throne of God's grace and present petitions that express honourable views of the love, riches and bounty of our king. Ask God for great things and trust him to fulfil your great expectations. 
because of his mercy, not because of your own righteousness, but because of his mercy. And that's what Jesus loved in, in the, on this day when this paralyzed man came. Boldness, boldness, trusting. It was honoring him to believe in him. It was honoring him. You honor Jesus when you believe and come audaciously, not in your own self-righteousness, but in his rich and manifold and great mercies. Hebrews 4.16 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's draw to this throne of grace so that we may receive mercy. And John Newton wrote this song, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power such none can ever ask too much. Do you come today and think you're asking too much? If you think you're asking too much, it's because you're abundantly aware of your unworthiness, which is only the start. But then you look at his mercy and he redeems you. You can ask bold, audacious prayers. With my burden I begin, Lord, remove this load of sin. Let thy blood for sinners spilt set my conscience free from guilt. And so today you might come with self-righteousness or self-loathing. Abundantly aware of your goodness or abundantly aware of your failures. And both are equal blockages to the promises of God. They're the same. The aware of your failures might feel more humble, but you're still blocked. And the aware of your goodness might feel proud. You have done good things, but both of them block you. We're all the same. But you come and you release it all to him. You repent and give it all up. And you can receive mercy. Lord, I come to thee for rest. Take possession of my breast. There thy blood bought right, maintain, and without a rival reign. You come to him in rest and you can ask because you are knowing you're honouring him. You're coming to the King of kings and Lord of lords. You can ask bold, audacious prayers. And he longs to say to you, paralysed person, get up. And he longs to say to you who is interceding for the paralysed person, well done. We're going, to, we're going to get into this person's life. We're going to change things around. While I am a pilgrim here, let thy love my spirit cheer. As my guide, my guard, my friend, lead me to my journey's end. That's the old hymn that John Newton wrote. And that was the secret to him receiving answers to bold, audacious prayers. And I believe God wants you to receive answers to bold and audacious prayers. I believe he wants to open the eyes of your heart so you can see whatever the blockage is. Is it your sin and your failures? Is it your self-righteousness? And he wants to fill you with something that you can't get into your heart. That hope that I was reading about right at the start. That hope to which he has called you. The rich of his, riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And his incompar incomparably great power for us who believe. I'd love it if the worship team would come back up and we could sing about the goodness of God again. Because when you sing this, you, you need to remind yourself of the goodness of God. <laughs> It's a good thing to remind yourself of. And as they come up, I'd just like to lead us in a time of prayer, reflection actually, where we actually allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts because we all sit in the room together and there's only one person who knows the thoughts of our hearts. You don't even know the thoughts of the hearts of the people that you do life with. Only Jesus knows the thoughts of your hearts and he actually is not condemning anyone he just wants your heart to be set free so that you can have bold, audacious prayers and see him work. That honours him because when he works powerfully in your life, people see the glory of God and they stand back like at the end of this story and they were amazed 
at what they had seen. And that's how we honour God. When people are amazed at what they've seen in your life, ordinary person, either self-righteous or sinner, whichever one it is, we're all sinners, you come to him, changes the thoughts of your heart first. And when he changes the thoughts of your heart, you suddenly see, I can come boldly to the throne of grace. I didn't realise. I can come boldly. There's no barrier blocking me because my sin is forgiven and my self-righteousness was worth nothing. Have you heard the story about the man who died and was a very, very rich man and he packed up his gold and he took it to heaven in a bag and he got to the gates and St. Peter says, what have you got in the bag? And he showed him, he said, oh, street pavers. Didn't need to bring them. Everything that we have that we think is valuable is invaluable in the kingdom. It is not valuable in the kingdom of heaven. It's only the mercy. It's the mercy and grace of God. And so let's pray. Father, open the eyes of our hearts. Father, where there is hopelessness here today, may we know the hope to which you have called us. You've called us into hope. It's not just hope for a situation. It's a heart filled with hope for every situation that you've called us to. Father, as we sit here today, open the eyes of our hearts to see if we feel poor, poor in spirit, hopeless, aware of our failures, aware of the things we missed in life, ashamed of ourselves, regrets. And Lord, help us to see the riches of the glorious inheritance that you give your people. Maybe you feel with gratefulness because we haven't deserved any of it and no matter how hard we try we could never deserve it and we're sorry for thinking we could and lord may we have a greater picture in our hearts of the the incomparably great power for those who believe and lord i pray for each one of us that you'll increase our faith in you even we cannot do that ourselves but you can do it increase our faith that we may pray bold, audacious prayers and come boldly to your throne and see you transform our lives and the lives of the people we carry to you, the paralysed people. I pray, Lord, that you'll put in our hearts and minds the paralysed people in our lives who we haven't been carrying. And, Lord, give us the love for them that we might start carrying them in prayer to your throne with words of encouragement to your throne blessing to your throne that their hope may increase that their sins may be forgiven that their life may be rich and full and full of joy and that they may know have the joy of knowing you thank you father thank you for listening to our sunday podcast if you enjoyed it either subscribe or follow on the podcast app that you use to keep up to date on when our next sunday podcast gets released have a safe and blessed week